Congregation, I invite you again to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. The 16th century Reformation continues to have an impact on us today, on what we believe and on how we live. October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg in Germany. And a major issue that Martin Luther was addressing had to do with how our sins can be forgiven. Is it by paying money for an indulgence in which the punishment of some or all of your sins was forgiven by the Pope? Or are we forgiven by repentance and faith in Christ? God used Martin Luther and other reformers to to expose the corruption and the biblical confusion that existed in the Roman Catholic Church. And by God's grace, it resulted in a massive reformation, a time of great revival, when many there that lived in Europe came to see their sins and how only Christ and in Christ they could be forgiven. As we continue to see the darkness and brokenness around us, we can rejoice that God, by His grace, gave renewed gospel clarity then. We can still see the, the effects and the benefits of that today. The gospel that continues to lead people to life. This afternoon, you want to consider the second piece of the whole armor of God. As we find it described in Ephesians 6, verse 14. The opening command of stand therefore... This applies to to all seven pieces. So we can say, stand therefore, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We can summarize the sermon in a sentence by saying that we are to stand by receiving and reflecting Christ's righteousness. So stand by receiving and reflecting Christ's righteousness. And the theme this afternoon is simply the words of our text. Stand, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. With the Lord's help, we want to unpack this in three thoughts. First, to see the picture in the breastplate. And second, receiving Christ's righteousness. And then third, reflecting Christ's righteousness. So like this morning, we begin with the picture. When I mention a soldier wearing a breastplate, uh, different pictures might come to your mind. The first thing I think of is one of those medieval knights that had the, the full body armor that's from, they're covered from head to toe. And you can maybe see this still in the museums. But the breastplate used by the Romans was a little different. Often they were made of different strips of metal that were wrapped around your torso and other strips on your shoulders. And this breastplate, it covered your whole upper body from your neck down to your waist. We can see the obvious importance of that. It's in this part of our body that we have so many of our vital organs, our heart and lungs, our kidneys, our liver, our stomach, etc. A serious injury to this part of the body, especially back then when there was no advanced medical treatment, would often be fatal. And this breastplate not only covers the front of the body, but also the back. And if you look at Uh, Many uh, different books and commentaries, they will make reference to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And then Pilgrim's Progress, or you have have 
Christian. He has left the city of destruction. He's on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem. And Bunyan there is describing how Christian is going down this road, but he meets Apollyon. This is another name for the devil. And there Bunyan is, says that Christian, he thinks about turning around and running away. But he stands his ground because he has no armor for his back. And if he turns his back to Satan, he'd be exposing himself to Satan's attacks. And I think there's a wonderful application in that, that we should never turn our back to Satan. But while we can appreciate this application, this doesn't fit with what the, the Roman soldiers' armor that, that they would have been envisioned here in Paul and his readers. And also if we think about the armor that we receive from God, would God give us a, a breastplate and armor but leave our back exposed? I think it's better to see this as a, an armor that protects our whole upper body. And wearing this breastplate did more than just protect a, the soldier. One commentator writes that the breastplate, by defending this principal part, emboldens the soldier and makes him fearless of danger. And that is as necessary in a fight as the other, as protection. It's almost all one for an army to be killed or to be scared. Right? So if we have this armor that we have confidence in, armor that we can trust in, we are more likely to f- fight bravely, more likely to take risks. Well, we also see this not just dealing with a, a physical armor and a physical war, but also spiritually. God gives us armor that protects our vitals. We'll get into what exactly this breastplate is in a minute. But already now we can rejoice and praise God that when God saves sinners, He doesn't leave them to fend for themselves. God gives them an armor to protect them from the attacks of Satan. God gives them an armor that they can trust in, an armor they can rely on. We've seen this morning that the belt of truth helps us to fight by removing hindrances, by holding our armor in place, by being foundational in, in things that we must believe. Well, the breastplate of righteousness, it gives us comfort, gives us confidence. It helps us to face sin and Satan with boldness. We looked at the belt of truth, we've seen there are two parts to it. There were the objective things that we had to, had to know. We can think of who God is, who we are, what sin is, how we can be saved. And then there was the application of it to ourselves, living in trustfulness and in, in integrity and in sincerity. And again, this afternoon, as we consider the breastplate of righteousness, again, there's, there's two parts to this. First of all, and most importantly, there is the righteousness that the believer has from Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ. But again, there's also that how we live if we have that righteousness. Our response to that, and that is the imperfect righteousness of the believer as he or she seeks to live as a faithful follower of Christ. So let's go on to our second thought and see the first part of this. That as we think about this breastplate of righteousness, it's especially to receive Christ's righteousness. 
before we get to Christ's righteousness, we need to know what this word righteousness means. Well, children, you've heard this word many times already so far in this service. And even if you think about the word itself, we have a hint there to what it means. The word righteousness begins with right, that which is the opposite of wrong. If you think of other similar words to righteous, that's something that is good, something that's upright, something that's pure. You can think of something that's law-abiding and just. And the opposite of being righteous is to be evil, to be corrupt, to be bad, to be unjust, dishonest. So we have righteousness. And just, again, if we even think of a little bit of our English grammar, it can be helpful. If you say that someone is righteous, then righteous there is an adjective describing something about that person. And boys and girls, some of you are learning about adjectives and nouns in school. So the word righteous, you can think of Jesus being righteous. That's a description of him. But when you add ness at the end, it turns into a noun, something that, that exists in and of itself. So we have the righteousness of Christ. We're talking about something that that belongs to Christ. It's something that Christ can give to those who who look to him, who believe in him. So this afternoon we talk about the righteousness of Christ. It's something that Christ has earned, Christ has accomplished. and something that he can give to those who trust in him, who believe in him. Okay, so coming back to this breastplate of righteousness... Why do we need it? Why do we need to have this breastplate of righteousness as we go through this life? We need this righteousness, this righteousness of Christ, because we are unrighteous. We are sinners. We are those who have broken God's law. We are those who, who not only have inherited the original sin of Adam, and, of Adam, but also those who, who continue to go on sinning against God day after day. Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have a, a striking description there. We're told there, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, so you think of the best things that we can do by ourselves, these are like filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, our sins, like the wind, have taken us away. So in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer before God. Even the best things that we can do, our our best obedience, the nicest things we might do for our parents or those around us, God's word tells us these are like filthy rags. We can't offer them to God. We have nothing in and of ourselves to go to God and say, Lord, this is what I have accomplished. Look at what I have done. If we want to be righteous, we need to perfectly obey God's law. It's not enough to do that just once in a while. It's required all the time. What do you call someone who tells a lie? You call them a liar. If they tell one lie or a hundred lies, they are still a liar. And we can apply that to ourselves with all the commandments. 
If we break the commandment just once, we are guilty. We are guilty before God. Each week we hear, or often you might hear, Jesus' Jesus's summary of the Ten Commandments. We can ask ourselves, do we love God with all our hearts, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength? Do we love our neighbor, the people around us, as much as we love ourselves? Do we not have to confess here? As we look at ourselves, we see so much inconsistency. We see so often not just inconsistency, but that we, we willingly and knowingly do what is wrong. We see such coldness in our hearts. Can see such selfishness in our hearts. This is why we need Christ's righteousness. What then is Christ's righteousness? If you think about Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, there are two parts to the work of Christ that we need to be saved. If you think of what's required to be To be acceptable to God, we need to have perfect obedience. Go think of this like an admissions ticket. You know, if you if you go perhaps to to Egg Expo or some other events, you need to produce a ticket to for them to let you in to the events. If you don't have a ticket, you don't get in. And really, what's required by God for, for us to get to heaven is to have this ticket, this ticket of perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. But the second thing that we need is to have our sins forgiven. God cannot allow a sinner to enter into heaven. So we think of Jesus Christ and his suffering, especially as he died on the cross, as he shed his blood, he made a way by which our sins can be forgiven. The Bible tells us that it's through the blood of Christ that our sins can be washed away, that we can appear before God without spot, without wrinkle. Jesus, by dying on the cross, he suffered the full weight of God's holy anger against sin. Think of how he cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus endured the wrath of God so that we who deserve God's wrath can have our sins forgiven when we trust in him. So we have the sacrificial death of Christ. This is of infinite value. This is the only way that our guilt, our sin can be, can be removed. But the death of Christ is not enough to save sinners. It's not enough for a sinner to have their sins removed. If you think of, maybe use this picture, that by our sin and our guilt, we're stuck in a deep hole, the hole of sin and guilt. And the blood of Christ, when it's applied to us, this gets, this gets us back out of the hole, or you can say back at zero. But we still need that admission ticket. We still need to have that obedience by which we can be acceptable to God. God's demands is that we have to obey God's law. And that brings us to the righteousness of Christ. We need a positive righteousness. This is where the 33 years of Christ's life upon earth comes in. 
during all of his lifetime, as a little child, as a teenager, as a young man, throughout his ministry, Jesus always perfectly loved God above all and his neighbor as himself. And it is this righteousness, this perfect record of Christ that believers receive when they believe in him. So not only are, is our sin and our guilt removed, but we receive the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. As part of our scripture reading, we read from Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. And here really is a, a vivid picture showing this, this transactional change that takes place. I'll read it for you again. And he showed me, Zachar- showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those who stood before him. Again, this is God speaking. Take away the filthy garments from him. Unto him, unto Joshua, God says, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. And I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. So you have Joshua the high priest. And he's wearing these filthy clothing. And these filthy clothing that he's wearing is a picture of sin and guilt. Really, it was, he needed to be cleansed before he could be acceptable to God. We even have Satan himself there accusing him, saying, look at him. Look how filthy he is. You're a holy and a pure God. How can you let someone like that into your presence? Then these filthy garments are removed. It's a picture of forgiveness, a picture of cleansing. This is made clear in the last part of verse 4 where God says to Joshua, See, I have removed your iniquity or your sin, your guilt from you. But God does not leave him standing there naked. God takes away the dirty clothes and God gives him a new set of clothing. See it described there. Last part of verse 4, I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. These were rich and beautiful robes that were given. And in verse 5, they, presumably the angels, uh, they came and they put a fair mitre on his head, this, this type of hat that the high priests were supposed to wear. And they clothed him with garments. And then notice these last words. And the angel of the Lord stood by. So here we have Christ himself looking on while Joshua is going, undergoing this transformation. Sin and guilt being removed. And God giving him this new clothing, these acceptable clothes. And all this was is symbolic. This pointed forward to Christ's perfect life and his sacrificial death and how that's being applied to believers. What a picture that is for us and how that helps us to understand the change that takes place when someone turns from their sins and turns to Christ. 
So Joshua, he received this righteousness. He received this forgiveness. But how can you, how can I receive this? How can we have our sin and guilt taken away? And how can we receive that perfect righteousness of Christ? Paul says it so clearly in Philippians 3 verse 9. And be found in him. Not having my own righteousness which is of the law. But that which is through the faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul tells us, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be clothed by God, you need to believe in Jesus, to put your trust in Him, to look to Him, to turn away from your sins and to flee to Christ and to trust that's only in and through Christ what He has done that you too can be forgiven. There are many other passages in Paul's letters that make this by faith and by faith alone aspect so clear. And again, this is one of the major doctrines that was restored in the Reformation. Martin Luther knew this personally. Before his conversion, Martin Luther tried so many different things. He would pray for hours on end. He would fast for days. Even his, his fellow monks were concerned that he would die because he became so weak. He went on his pilgrimage to Rome and he would crawl up the stairs on his knees till his knees were bleeding. He would take whips and whip himself so the blood would be running down his back. And all these things that, that he was trying to do, instead of saving himself, he was going on in his guilt. He was going on without Christ. But at last he came to gospel clarity when he believed that the just shall live by faith. So here we have this righteousness of Christ that we receive when we trust, when we believe in him. But coming back now again more to, to the passage, the, the context here in Ephesians. How does receiving the righteousness of Christ, how does this help us as we face Satan, as we deal with, with sin in our own hearts. The second half of Romans 8 has, has many wonderful passages in connection with that. One verse there says, or describes, or asks, why can the devil not bring any charge? Why can he not bring any accusations against God's elect? The answer Paul gives us there is that it is God who justifies why can no one condemn God's elect? It is because Christ has died. He rather Christ has been risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If we had to contribute something to our salvation, we would always be in doubt. Satan could come to us and say, you haven't done enough. You haven't done it the right way. You didn't do it with enough zeal or desire. But it's because we are saved in what Christ has done. And we, re we receive His perfect righteousness. That we can have such confidence. When Satan comes to attack us, when he says you haven't done enough, you, you didn't do it the right way, 
we can say, you're right. I haven't done enough. I don't do things the right way, but I'm not saved because of what I have done. I have been saved because of what Christ, my Savior, has done. So do you see how receiving this righteousness of Christ, it gives us this boldness, this confidence. Pastor Ian Hamilton has a commentary on Ephesians, and he he notes another way in which this righteousness of Christ is so valuable. He writes, the Christian faith is deeply and pervasively experiential. You cannot truly know the presence of God and not be moved by it. It would be the height of folly, be very foolish for Christians to face the assaults of the devil on the basis of their feelings and experiences. Nothing but the perfect righteousness of Christ will answer whatever charge the devil lays against you. So when Satan attacks, you don't say, I know I'm saved because of that wonderful experience I had. I know I'm saved because of, of the, the things that, the emotions that I've felt. But you say, I'm saved because I am united to Christ. Because He is my hope. He is my confidence. The congregation Do you have this breastplate of righteousness? As you're here this afternoon, can you say that by God's grace, you have fled to Christ? By God's grace, you are resting in Christ as your only hope, your only foundation for eternity. Can you say this afternoon, there is nothing that I have done but I have Christ's righteousness. As you deal with the attacks of and assaults of Satan, do you use and do you point to the righteousness of Christ as your confidence, as your hope, as your joy? So far we spent a lot of time and attention on how we are to receive the righteousness of Christ. And that's the main focus in the text here. So when you think of this breastplate of righteousness, think especially of the righteousness that we have in Christ. As I said in the introduction, there's a second part to this. Let's see this in our third thoughts. We are to be, re- re- be reflecting Christ's righteousness. When someone is born again, when they are regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit and made spiritually alive, this is going to have an impact, an effect on the way that they live. Have you seen how that by faith we cling to Christ, our sin and guilt is removed, we receive the righteousness of Christ? But now in this relationship, being united to God and having the Holy Spirit living in their hearts, they're going to begin to live differently. Something of the righteousness of Christ is going to begin to be reflected in our actions and in our words and also in our thoughts. Why is this so important? 
Why is it important that believers show something of the righteousness of Christ, albeit in an imperfect manner? Well, Jesus clearly taught that we would know them, that is, believers, by their fruits. It is that we would recognize that someone is a Christian by the way that they are living. We see this so clearly in John 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Another passage in the Old Testament that teaches the same thing. Read there in Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So spiritual life will and must result in spiritual living. To quote Ian Hamilton again, he writes, An unrighteous life that is not being shaped by God's truth in union with Christ is an unchristian life. So why do we have to show something of the righteousness of Christ in, throughout our life? And the answer is, if we are not living, seeking the Lord's face, seeking to live obediently in obedience to Christ... If we are not living that way, we have no reason to believe we are a Christian. If God has given us a new heart, new desires, we should begin to see something of that now. What's that going to look like? And how can you examine yourself? If you want to show something of Christ's righteousness... We should live more like Christ himself lived. Again, to come back to the summary of God's law. To love God more than everything else in this world. And to have more and more a real love and care and concern for the people around us. We are to put on and to use the whole armor of God in our day-to-day life. I said this morning that it is Jesus Christ who first of all wore this armor. Even the, the, the breastplate of righteousness, we can, one of those pastors in the Old Testament and spoke of that, how Christ wore righteousness. We are to be more like Christ. We are to wear this armor. We are to, to produce the fruit of the Spirit as we see in Galatians 5. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. We also see this in Lord's Day 33, the Catechism. And there we have true conversion being described. Again, it's of two parts. A hating and fleeing of sin, being grieved by sin, 
and a love and a desire to live for Christ. Again, we also seen this in Christ, didn't we? How he always perfectly hated sin, how he was grieved by sin, how he delighted to live in the way that God was leading him. How will this, how will this help us to stand? How will us reflecting Christ's righteousness help us as we face Satan? Let's apply this to a practical example, like when we're jealous. We see what belongs to someone else and we desire to have it. To walk in obedience, to, to show something of the righteousness of Christ is that when we see something, when we, when we realize that we are beginning to become jealous, that we repent of that. That we go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I see this jealousy stirring up in my heart. Help me to be content. Help me to turn away from this. And if we do that, Satan can't do much with that temptation, can he? If Satan tempts us to, to desire what someone else has and we see that and we flee to Christ and we look to him for help, then what's Satan going to do? But on the other hand, if we see something that we really want, that bike, that toy, that car, that promotion at work, we begin to, to long for it. We find our, ourselves becoming more and more jealous. And instead of turning from this and going to God, we keep on letting this jealousy fester in our minds. Then Satan can come and, and do even more damage. We begin to resent, even hate that person. We begin to, to take steps to, to get what they have for ourselves. A good example of this is King David. He knew God's will. He knew God's law, God's instruction. Yet there he was that one evening and he seen Bathsheba. Instead of turning away from her and confessing his lust and his jealousy and desire, we see that he continued to look. And then he took her when it turns out that she was expecting his child, he tries to hide his sin. And when that didn't work, he had her husband killed. What a mess David made. See how instead of living in obedience to God, he gave in to that sinful desire. He listened and he followed the promptings of Satan. What dishonor David brought to God and to God's people. What reason David gave for, for Satan and his enemies to rejoice. To seeing how David fall, how he fell so deeply. But again, that brings us back to the gospel, doesn't it? We see this very sad example in the life of David. But then we get beautiful psalms like Psalm 51. We see how, how by God's grace, David did repent. How David was grieved by his sin. How David confessed his sins to God. He knew he had missed the mark. He knew he was unrighteous. And he already here was showing how he was looking for the righteousness of another to be his righteousness. David there, he was pleading with God to forgive his sins, to restore him. For those of us who are believers, 
We are to reflect the righteousness of Christ in our lives. Again, we can ask ourselves, is this something that we are seeking to do? Do we have a desire to show the world around us that we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ? Perhaps more revealing, are you grieved when you see how much you fail in this? Are you grieved when you realize that by your, by your actions, by your life, instead of reflecting the righteousness of Christ, you continue to show so much sin, so much unbelief, so much brokenness? As you see your shortcomings, as you see how far you come short, are you going back to Christ? Are you going back to Christ again and say, Lord, I have messed up again. I have again come short. I'm such a poor reflection of what you have done. Lord, help me. Equip me. Strengthen me. Those are the marks of a believer. That you have this desire and that you're grieved when you fail. And again, that brings you back to Christ and a greater desire and a seeking for his help and strength. The congregation, how glorious God is in his provision for his people. It is the Lord who gives us strength and help to, to live the Christian life. He gives us this armor that we are to wear, this belt of truth that, that shows us who he is, who we are, and it leads us to Christ. This breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness of the beloved Son of God, who paid such a price so that we can be covered, so that we can have this protection. If you're still living without Christ as Savior and Lord, will you not come to Him? This Jesus has exactly what you need. Not just forgiveness of your sins, but a perfect record, a perfect righteousness that he gives to those who look to him. If you've come to love Christ and to trust in Christ, as we have seen even today how good God is, how generous God is, what abundant provision he gives to his children, we not seek to live life in greater obedience to Christ. We not seek to show greater thankfulness and love to Him and a greater desire to reflect what Christ has done in, in the way that you live. We still have five pieces of armor to go. Yet already at this point we should confess as we sing in Psalter 48, the Lord's unfailing righteousness all generations shall confess. From age to age shall men be taught what wondrous works the Lord has wrought. Amen.